to introduce our guest speaker, Cody Lashett. He is uh, the spiritual teaching pastor. He's nodding at me at First Assembly in Calgary. He basically does my job in a different community, so we're colleagues. Um, and he came to help um, teach our young adults about the Holy Spirit and then was very gracious to offer to share with us this morning in this time of transition. We're still glad to have him here. He's from Calgary where he lives with his wife and his little eight-month-old daughter. And he's been a pastor, a church planter, a teacher, and he currently is completing his master's and working toward a PhD. So he has a ton to offer us. Would you welcome Cody along this week? If you have a Bible or a device, will you open with me the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4? Luke's biography of Jesus, chapter 4. As many of you know, I'm catching up, but you know, we are in the midst of a series on the unique stories of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. And the series is going to take some time to examine the sort of unique stories that over the privilege of looking at a very famous text from the gospel, Jesus is reading from the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue. But first, let's pray together. Holy Spirit, come. Make us all aware of your divine presence. Fill the soil of our hearts. Stir our imagination. Strengthen our weakness and heal our pain. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And together we all said, Amen. Hey, let me introduce you this morning to Clint Brooks. Clint Brooks was an American literary critic and professor whose work contributed to a movement within literary studies known as the New Criticism. Brooks wrote several influential books that were helped establish the New Criticism. It revolutionized the teaching of poetry with an American higher education. And before he wrote his most influential work, a collection of essays known as The Well-Lost in this book, In the Well-Lost Turn, Brooks traces the English poetic tradition by surveying ten essays that span from the early Elizabethan era into the modern era. He examines the poems of John Donne and William Shakespeare and John Milton and William Wordsworth and many others. And the aim of these essays for Brooks was to determine the common qualities of these works that make them timeless. Exceptional. The question was, what makes these poems, these poets, what makes their works timeless and exceptional? And the final chapter of that book, arguably the most important, entitled The Heresy of Paraphrase, Brooks concludes the essay by arguing that the defining characteristic of exceptional poetry is not the content of the poem, but the form that the poem takes. According to Brooks, when we paraphrase a poem, we tend to split a poem into sort of two core elements. The content, that is, the stuff that we can summarize, the meaning of the poem, the principles of the poem, and the form, that is, the experiential defining qualities that make that poem what it is. But for Brooks, and hearing this morning is very important, these uh, cannot be separated, according to Brooks. 
simply stated, according to Dickman Brooks, content and form are inseparable. The form becomes the meaning. The meaning is only found in the form. There is no meaning apart from form. And according to Brooks, any attempt to transmit a work's supposed message so that the full context that it was meant to reside within will destroy the unity of the work and distort it to what he calls a heretical paraphrase. The work of analysis, according to criticism, did not mean to convert a work or an idea into some more palatable form, but to be to deepen the meaning by preserving the content and the form. Now, this principle, which might sound wild to you because maybe you're not a huge fan of poetry, is true of any good literature, art, or music. You know, the content of The Starry Night by Van Gogh, to know the technique of the brushstrokes and the colors that are used, to know the content and to separate that from the form of the poem is to reduce it to not being the work of art at all anymore. The content of Brahms' Requiem is not to know the proper form of experiencing a symphony in all its glory. The words from a particular language is not to experience the form of that language, or maybe if you're like me, the content of the television show The Office is not to experience the full form of Michael Scott. Now, in all these examples, it seems that to know only the content is in a very real sense a heresy. Because the content cannot be truly known apart from the form. And so all of that leads to a really important question this morning. Can we ever know content apart from form? Can we ever make sharp distinctions between the content of something and the form that it takes? And Interestingly, this question of content and form is the heart of the text we're examining this morning. Look there with me, Luke chapter 4, I'll start reading at verse 16. And we know Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. Instead of to read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to gospel to the destitute. He sent me to announce release for the captives and cite recovery to the sightless ones, to commission the broken with release, to announce the year of the Lord's reception. So if you've been tracking along in Luke's gospel, following his temptation in the wilderness and the brief summary statement regarding the early stages of his ministry, we're informed here that Jesus returns home to Nazareth. And we find ourselves here at a, at a key turning point in the early movements of the narrative. In this case, we're moving from the private aspects of Jesus' growth and his baptism and his temptation now to the public declaration that will mark the beginning of his public life and ministry. Luke highlights here that Jesus is returning to the very place that he grew up in wisdom and in stature. He's returning to this small, podunk, backwater town of Nazareth and remaining faithful to the customs, he returns to synagogue on Sabbath. Notice here, Jesus doesn't defy the customs, doesn't try to overthrow the systems, but he situates his mission within the very customs and lineage of his people. And it's in that synagogue service that Jesus stands to perform the second reading of the service. He was custom in a Jewish synagogue service that 
the Torah was first read, a reading from the first five books in the books of Moses, and then someone would read from the prophets, first from Moses, then from the prophets. And so when Jesus stands to take the scroll, this is for the second reading of Scripture, and he receives the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, he finds this passage from Isaiah 61, and he reads it for all to hear. And you know what's interesting? We offer some fascinating sense of unity here. We're not informed whether this was actually the scheduled reading or whether Jesus chose to read this section of the scroll from Isaiah. But regardless, this unique story offered by Luke highlights that of all, out of all the prophetic texts in the Hebrew Bible, Jesus entered the synagogue on this very day to read this particular section of Isaiah. Specifically, Jesus enters into the synagogue on this day because he wants to read this particular text from Isaiah 61. And like me, you wonder why this passage? Why, out of all the passages that Jesus could have read, why does he choose to read Isaiah 61? Well, if you know anything about the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 61 is this magnificent moment where the prophet is announcing good news of restoration and hope that will mark the mission of the prophet. The figure proclaims that he will cause liberation and healing and renewal for all the exiled peoples of Israel. The prophet will proclaim gospel to those who have been afflicted by the harsh conditions of exile. The prophet proclaims that he will heal broken hearts and bind up the wounds of those who have experienced oppression. Announcing that the captives are going to be released and all the prison doors are going to come open. And the prophet announces that when the spirit of Yahweh comes upon him, he will inaugurate the year of Yahweh's favor towards all those who are enslaved. The prophet declared that death Enslavement will come to an end. Debt will be forgiven and land will be returned to their original owners. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty good year to me. Isaiah declares that when the anointed one comes, his very arrival is going to bring immense favor. His advent is going to inaugurate what the Jewish people call Jubilee. In other words, the figure is going to announce, but also affect the holistic redemption the created order. And here the prophet is announcing that God's restoring the future, the binding up of broken hearts, and the setting captives free is coming for the lowly and the oppressed and the marginalized. This work of God is coming for the unlikely. The figure is going to comfort those who mourn. The figure is going to transform them into rebuilders and make them priests of the new Zion. And these people will become beacons of hope for all the nations. So at the beginning, the very beginning of his public life, his public mission, Jesus locates and reads this particular section of Isaiah, Luke chapter 4, verse 20, and then he rolled out the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So following the reading of this section of Isaiah, Jesus rolls up the scroll, he returns it to the attendant, and he sits down. That was important. In Jewish tradition, 
unlike church today, people would stand for the reading of Scripture, and then they would sit for the interpretation of the Scripture. So the fact that I'm standing to teach the Scripture this morning, that's not the way the Jewish people would do it. They would stand for the reading and then sit for the interpretation. And so standing for the reading, Jesus returns the scroll and then he sits down. And when Jesus sits down, they are anticipating that he is now going to interpret the scroll of Isaiah. Jesus sits down, they all sort of lean forward a little bit because they are anticipating that Jesus is going to tell them what Isaiah 61 means. And so the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They're staring intently, anticipations, running high hopes, lingering beneath the surface because they want to hear the interpretation from the one whose reputation is spreading from village to village to village. And Jesus then proceeds to tell them that he is the fulfillment of this passage. An eight-word sermon. I know that's what you were hoping for this morning. Jesus proclaims that the entire story of Israel is now culminating in his mission. Jesus informs them that the Messianic program has taken on its complete shape in his mission. In his paraphrase, Eugene Peterson puts it this way, then he started, you've just heard scripture make history. It came true just now in this place. Now, hear me this morning. Jesus, in this moment, is informing them, hey, you've known the content of Isaiah 61, but now you see the form that Isaiah 61 will take. The content can now be completely unveiled and understood. The content of Israel's scriptures now takes on complete meaning because the form has been disclosed in Jesus of Nazareth. Now, hear me. This declaration is simple, but it is wildly subversive. You see, Jesus here is claiming to displace all previous understandings of the content of Israel's history. Because here, the thing signified is more important than the sign. Jesus is more important than the law and the prophets. Jesus comes and he says, I am the form that the story takes. And this is important for us this morning as we contemplate Luke chapter 4 together, because apart from the form, the form that Jesus offers for the content of our scriptures, the content simply can become a heresy. A lifeless paraphrase destined to be warped, misunderstood, and changed in a thousand different directions. Created simply, Jesus reshapes and clarifies the content by confirming the form. Luke offers the state of a new era that is now joining the ministry of Jesus. Jesus says, Hear me, I am coming for the inclusion of the marginalized, the outcast, and the broken. Jesus is about showing you the form that the story takes. The story is about releasing captives and prisoners. It's about healing wounds and afflictions. It's about ending all forms of enslavement. It's about forgiving debts and returning land to its original owners. This is the form that the content of the story must take. And see, for Jesus, these are both spiritual and concrete realities. In modern Western context, we tend to domesticate these realities by turning them simply into spiritual realities. But Jesus here is talking about the actual release of baptism, the actual forgiveness of death, and the actual return of land. It's heard by Richard Hilton in this context. The unchanged prophet in the tradition of Isaiah of Jerusalem proclaims to them God's commitment to what we might call urban renewal the healing and restoration of social order. But Jesus demonstrates the form that the content of their history is now taking. 
fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. The fulfillment of the mission of God to see the content of all those years of history is finally realized in the form that is demonstrated in Jesus. And initially, those in the synagogue were astonished. I mean, they're struck by a form of admiration as they're moved by the authority and the eloquence and the graciousness of Jesus. But that admiration is quickly revealed to be misguided admiration as the actual response to the Messianic program emerges. Luke chapter 4, verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Dr. Cure Yourself. And you will say, do hear also in your hometown the things that the avert you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is this, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah. Elijah was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Notice your admiration moves to indignation. Composure to contempt. Hope turns to hate. Misguided admiration emerges because the people fail to realize that the content can only be defined by the form that is taken in Jesus. And you see, the people have their own expectations. For the way the story will unfold, with the centrality of their tribe and the crushing of their enemies and the restoration of their power. I think we need to carefully notice this morning the people in the synagogue seem to know the content. They even want the content of the story, but they don't want the form that that content is taking in Jesus. They want to reshape the content into a form that they can domesticate and control. The people want a particular version of the content packaged within their own form, and admiration turns to question, wait a minute, isn't this just Joseph's son? The question is marked by a kind of misunderstanding here. The hometown crowd can't fathom or even grasp the actual identity and mission of the one who grew up like a tender shoot in their midst. The positive perception then bends towards indignation when Jesus explains that his mission is not going to be their expectation. Jesus offers here then three striking examples of the way that the form that he's offering is going to be rejected. He offers them a, a common proverb, the story of Elijah and a widow, and Elijah and Naaman the Syrian. The common proverb here, Dr. Cure Yourself, you know, this one that we just read, hints at the hostility that's going to come to the prophet on account of the mistaken assumption that the prophet will come to benefit us, but not them. Well, the two examples from the prophets Elijah and Elijah show that there is a long-standing tradition in the history of Israel for the prophets to regroup, regather, and offer restoration to all peoples, both insiders and outsiders, widows, lepers, marginalized, orphans, the insiders and the outsiders, the righteous and the sinners, the powerful and the marginalized. In chapter 4, verse 28, when they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with 
dig it up and drove him out of the town and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. And hearing the form that the content of their story is taking, all the people in the synagogue are filled with rage. They drive Jesus out of his hometown. They bring him to the edge of the hill with the sole intention of killing him. But in the midst of all of that chaos, Jesus passed through their midst and departed on his way. So we just return to the question this morning, can we ever know the content apart from the proper form? The question this morning really is, can we take the content of the scriptures apart from the form that they take on in Jesus? And at the heart of this text, what Jesus is saying here in Luke chapter 4, very similar to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, is that content and form can never be separated. The content can never be separated from the form that it is taking on in Jesus. Content, apart from form, will always produce the heresy of character. You know, on a theological level, I think we might be able to agree that content and form can't be separated. They're inseparable. But hear me this morning, as a new friend to you, on a functional level, we're in a cultural moment where we often colonize the content, we modify the form, and we misunderstand the mission. There are those among us in churches across our nation who claim ownership over the content. The content becomes their weapon for exclusion. The content is the way they get power and they assert dominance. The scripture, the content of the scripture gets morphed into a shape to ensure that we can guard and protect the truth. For them, Isaiah 61 becomes a mission for insiders, those who hold power and theological position, and the text becomes centered upon vengeance and not favor. In assuming the content without the form, the character of Jesus is obliterated, reduced reduced to a heretical paraphrase. Here, there are others. There are others in this room this morning who claim ownership over their perceived version of the form. The form is assumed that they throw away the historic Orthodox content and they colonize the mission of Jesus, and that ends up morphing into nothing more than a social amelioration project. You see, in assuming the form without the content, we allow the distinctiveness of Jesus to disintegrate. Jesus is nothing more than another advocate for our tribe of choice, reduced to heretical paraphrase. And here we both sides, both sides in our very polarized moment inside and outside of the church claim ownership and superiority. One claims truth and the other claims love. One claims secure boundaries and the other open boundaries. Both sides take hold of the story while failing to realize that we are not designed to take hold of this story. This story is designed to take hold of us. We act as though our tribe, our group, that we are the keepers and purveyors, but here Jesus confounds the wisdom of the wise. He scatters the proud and the imagination of their hearts, choosing the appearance of foolishness to shame the wise, the weak things in the world to shame the strong, and the lowly and despised to shame our systems of value. First, we are not the owners. None are superior. Truth and love always if there are secure boundaries and there are open borders, content and form are inseparable because Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. 
Jesus demonstrates the form that the content must take, and all attempts to separate content from form will inevitably create heresy. Domesticating the content or claiming ownership over the form. And I think the church in the West, the church that I am pastoring, and I think you here in Saskatoon, we're at an important crossroads. Because when it comes to separating content and form, none are righteous, no, not one. We're all doing this in some way, shape, or form. And the third way offered to us in Jesus is a pathway of spiritual wisdom marked by humility because holding content and form together is the most pressing challenge before us as disciples of Jesus. The temptation is the interpretation of the content without the form. The temptation is the form without the full content. And Jesus' words invite us to release our attempts to claim ownership and control. Jesus' words invite us to lay down our heresies, our paraphrases, and our truncated versions of the story. Because we are fracturing an account of our separation of content and form. We select our side, we tend to denounce the other side, we grandstand while claiming moral superiority, but in reality, we are just invited to let this story take hold of us. As the worship team returns this morning, Jesus welcomes all of our gift by his word. Hear me this morning. Jesus welcomes all peoples at his table, insiders and outsiders, righteous and sinners, powerful and marginalized. Jesus is against exclusion. He welcomes everyone, but he welcomes them as disciples. We are not welcome to claim content or form, but to come behind Jesus. We're invited to follow Jesus because followers of Jesus follow Jesus. And at one point, I think many of us begin kind of the same way as this hometown crowd in Nazareth. When it comes to Jesus, so many of us we began this journey of astonished. We were moved by the words of Jesus, the enigmatic prophet. We were gripped by hope. And I think through COVID and life and the cultural moment we're living in, slowly over time, we moved to anger and rage and separating content from but the heart this morning, all I want to invite us into, like you, is to take a deep breath. To release the death grips that you've taken on the content or the form and allow the story to once more take hold of our hearts and our minds. See, Jesus entered the synagogue one Sabbath. He read the scroll that was defining his prophetic mission and task, claiming that the content of the scriptures comes to fulfillment in him. The content is coming into its intended but Jesus was met with indignation and rage and a movement towards murder. And so as we end this morning, what if all of our divisions in the church, what if all of our fighting and superiority is simply rooted in a symptom of separating content from form, from domesticating the story, from making the story all about us? What if, just what if we allowed Jesus to become strange to us once more? What if we allow the calling of discipleship to scandalize us all over again? What, ha- what would happen if we held content and form together and we said it is inseparable? And here this morning, Jesus does not offer us easy solutions to our divisions, clear distinctives to find a way through the mess of our cultural moment, or even assurances that everything is going to be okay. Jesus just says, follow me. Jesus bids us to come and die to lay hold of our grips that we have on the story so that the story can lay hold of us once more. 
the pathway of life begins in self-denial, setting the pathway of death where we begin to let go of our conceptions of the content and the form and follow the one who releases the captives, who offers recovery of sight to those who are blind, who commissions the broken which release and announces the sacred. May it be so in us and through us. Let's pray together. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Whether it's hatred, let us know love. Whether it's injury, pardon. Whether it's doubt, faith. Whether it's despair, hope. Whether it's darkness, light, and whether it's sadness, joy. What do I ask your friend that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love? What is in giving that we receive? It is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Together, we all said, Amen. Let's stand together. Amen.